Chapter 11, Part 1 of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Chapter 11, Part 1 Difficulties and Objections. Yet ye say, The way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? Ezekiel 18.25 A convenient point has been reached when we may now examine more definitely some of the difficulties encountered and the objections which might be advanced against what we have written in previous pages. The author deemed it better to reserve these for a separate consideration rather than deal with them as he went along, requiring as that would have done the breaking of the course of thought and destroying the strict unity of each chapter, or else cumbering our pages with numerous and lengthy footnotes. That there are difficulties involved in an attempt to set forth the truth of God's sovereignty is readily acknowledged. The hardest thing of all, perhaps, is to maintain the balance of truth. It is largely a matter of perspective. That God is sovereign is explicitly declared in Scripture. That man is a responsible creature is also expressly affirmed in Holy Writ. To define the relationship of these two truths, to fix the dividing line betwixt them, to show exactly where they meet, to exhibit the perfect consistency of the one with the other, is the weightiest task of all. Many have openly declared that it is impossible for the finite mind to harmonize them. Others tell us it is not necessary or even wise to attempt it. But as we have remarked in an earlier chapter, it seems to us more honoring to God to seek in his word the solution to every problem. What is impossible to man is possible with God, and while we grant that the finite mind is limited in its reach, yet we remember that the scriptures are given to us that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, and if we approach their study in the spirit of humility and of expectancy, then according unto our faith will it be unto us. As remarked above, the hardest task in this connection is to preserve the balance of truth while insisting on both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the creature. To some of our readers, it may appear that in pressing the sovereignty of God to the lengths we have, man is reduced to a mere puppet. Hence, to guard against this, they would modify their definitions and statements relating to God's sovereignty, and thus seek to blunt the keen edge of what is so offensive to the carnal mind. Others, while refusing to weigh the evidence that we have adduced in support of our assertions, may raise objections which, to their minds, are sufficient to dispose of the whole subject. We would not waste time in the effort to refute objections made in a carping and contentious spirit, but we are desirous of meeting fairly the difficulties experienced by those who are anxious to obtain a fuller knowledge of the truth. Not that we deem ourselves able to give a satisfactory and final answer to every question that might be asked. Like the reader, the writer knows but in part, and sees through a glass darkly. All that we can do is to examine these difficulties in the light we now have, independence upon the Spirit of God that we may follow on to know the Lord better. We propose now to retrace our steps and pursue the same order of thought as that followed up to this point. As a part of our definition of God's sovereignty, we affirmed, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. The sovereignty of the God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. To put it now in its strongest form, we insist that God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity. 
In proof of this assertion, we appeal to the following scripture. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115, verse 3. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Isaiah 14, verse 27. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4, verse 35. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, verse 36. The above declarations are so plain and positive that any comments of ours upon them would simply be darkening counsel by words without knowledge. Such express statements as those just quoted are so sweeping and so dogmatic that all controversy concerning the subject of which they treat ought forever to be at an end. Yet, rather than receive them at their face value, every device of carnal ingenuity is resorted to so as to neutralize their force. For example, it has been asked, if what we see in the world today is but the outworking of God's eternal purpose, if God's counsel is now being accomplished, then why did our Lord teach his disciples to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Is it not a clear implication from these words that God's will is not now being done on earth? The answer is very simple. The emphatic word in the above clause is as. God's will is being done on earth today. If it is not, then our earth is not subject to God's rule. And if it is not subject to his rule, then he is not, as scripture proclaims him to be, the Lord of all the earth. Joshua 3 verse 13. But God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Consciously and joyfully. How is it done on earth? For the most part, unconsciously and sullenly. In heaven, the angels perform the bidding of their creator intelligently and gladly, but on earth, the unsaved among men accomplish his will blindly and in ignorance. As we have said in earlier pages, when Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus and when Pilate sentenced him to be crucified, they had no conscious intentions of fulfilling God's decrees, yet, nevertheless, unknown to themselves, they did do so. But again, it has been objected, if everything that happens on earth is the fulfilling of the Almighty's pleasure, if God has foreordained before the foundation of the world everything which comes to pass in human history, then why do we read in Genesis 6, 6, It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Does not this language intimate that the antediluvians had followed a course which their maker had not marked out for them, and that in view of the fact they had corrupted their way upon the earth, the Lord regretted that he had ever brought such a creature into existence? Ere drawing such a conclusion, let us note what is involved in such an inference. If the words, it repented the Lord that he had made man, are regarded in an absolute sense, then God's omniscience would be denied, for in such a case the course followed by man must have been unforeseen by God in the day that he created him. Therefore, it must be evident to every reverent soul that this language bears some other meaning. We submit that the words, it repented the Lord, is an accommodation to our finite intelligence, and in saying this we are not seeking to escape a difficulty or cut a knot, but are advancing an interpretation which we shall seek to show is in perfect accord with the general trend of Scripture. The Word of God is addressed to men, and therefore it speaks the language of men. 
because we cannot rise to god's level he in grace comes down to ours and converses with us in our own speech the apostle paul tells us of how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not possible margin to utter second corinthians twelve verse four those on earth could not understand the vernacular of heaven the finite cannot comprehend the infinite hence the almighty deigns to couch his revelation in terms we may understand it is for this reason the bible contains many anthropomorphisms as in representations of god in the form of man god is spirit yet the scriptures speak of him as having eyes ears nostrils breath hands etc which is surely an accommodation of terms brought down to the level of human comprehension again we read in genesis 18 verse 20 and 21 and the lord said because the cry of sodom and gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous i will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is come up unto me and if not i will know now manifestly this is an anthropologism god speaking in human language god knew the conditions which prevailed in sodom and his eyes had witnessed its fearful sins yet he is pleased to use terms here that are taken from our own vocabulary again in genesis twenty two verse twelve we read and he god said lay not thine hand upon the lad neither do thou anything unto him for now i know that thou fearest god seeing thou hast not withheld thy son thine only son from me here again god is speaking in the language of men for he knew before he tested abram exactly how the patriarch would act so too the expression of god so often in jeremiah uh, chapter seven verse thirteen etc of him rising up early is manifestly an accommodation of terms once more in the parable of the vineyard christ himself represents its owner as saying then said the lord of the vineyard what shall i do i will send my beloved son it may be they will reverence him when they see him luke twenty verse thirteen and yet it is certain that god knew perfectly well that the husbandmen of the vineyard the jews would not reverence his son but instead would despise and reject him as his own word had declared in the same way we understand the words of genesis six six it repented the lord that he had made man on the earth as an accommodation of terms to human comprehension this verse does not teach that god was confronted with an unforeseen contingency and therefore regretted that he had made man but it expresses the abhorrence of a holy god at the awful wickedness and corruption into which man had fallen should there be any doubt remaining in the minds of our readers as to the legitimacy and soundness of our interpretation a direct appeal to scripture should instantly and entirely remove it the strength of israel a divine title will not he nor repent for he is not a man that he should repent first samuel fifteen verse twenty nine every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning james one verse seventeen careful attention to what we have said above will throw light on numerous other passages which if we ignore their figurative character and fail to note that god applies to himself human modes of expression will be obscure and perplexing having commented at such length upon genesis six six there will be no need to give such a detailed exposition of other passages which belong to the same class yet for the benefit of those of our readers who may be anxious for us to examine several other scriptures we turn to one or two more one scripture which we often cited in order to overthrow the teaching advanced in this book is our lord's lament over jerusalem 
o jerusalem jerusalem thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee how often would i have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and ye would not matthew twenty three verse thirty seven the question is asked do not these words show that the saviour acknowledged the defeat of his mission that as a people the jews resisted all his gracious overtures toward them in replying to this question it should first be pointed out that our lord is here referring not so much to his own mission as he is upbraiding the jews for having in all ages rejected his grace this is clear from his reference to the prophets the old testament bears full witness of how graciously and patiently jehovah dealt with his people and with what extreme obstinacy from first to last they refused to be gathered unto him and how in the end he abandoned them to follow their own devices yet as the same scriptures declare the counsel of god was not frustrated by their wickedness for it had been foretold and therefore decreed by him see for example first kings eight verse thirty three Matthew 23, verse 37, may well be compared with Isaiah 65, verse 2, where the Lord says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good, after their own thoughts. But it may be asked, did God seek to do that which was in opposition to his own eternal purpose? In words borrowed from Calvin, we reply, Though to our apprehension the will of God is manifold and various, yet he does not in himself will things at variance with each other, but astonishes our faculties with his various and manifold wisdom, according to the expression of Paul, till we shall be enabled to understand that he mysteriously wills what now seems contrary to his will. As a further illustration of the same principle, we would refer the reader to Isaiah 5 verses 1-4. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine-press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes? Is it not plain from this language that God reckoned himself to have done enough for Israel to warrant an expectation, speaking after the manner of men, of better returns? Yet is it not equally evident when Jehovah says here, he looked that it should bring forth grapes, that he is accommodating himself to a form of finite expression? And so also when he says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that i have not done in it we need to take note that in the previous enumeration of what he had done the fencing etc he refers only to external privileges means and opportunities which had been bestowed upon israel for of course he could even then have taken away from them their stony heart and given them a new heart even a heart of flesh had he so pleased perhaps we should link up with christ's lament over jerusalem in matthew twenty three verse thirty seven his tears over the city recorded in luke nineteen verse forty one he beheld the city and wept over it in the verses which immediately follow we learn what it was that occasioned his tears saying if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace but now they are hid from thine eyes for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side it was the prospect of the fearful judgment which christ knew was impending but did those tears make manifest a disappointed god nay verily 
Instead, they displayed a perfect man. The man Christ Jesus was no emotionless stoic, but one filled with compassion. Those tears expressed the sinless sympathies of his real and pure humanity. Had he not wept, he had been less than human. Those tears were one of many proofs that in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2 verse 17. In chapter 1 we have affirmed that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, and in saying this we are fully aware that many will strongly resent the statement, and that, furthermore, what we have now to say will probably meet with more criticism than anything else advanced in this book. Nevertheless, we must be true to our convictions of what we believe to be the teaching of Holy Scripture, and we can only ask our readers to examine diligently in the light of God's word what we here submit to their attention. One of the most popular beliefs of the day is that God loves everybody, and the very fact that it is so popular with all classes ought to be enough to arouse the suspicions of those who are subject to the word of truth. God's love toward all his creatures is the fundamental and favorite tenet of universalists, unitarians, theosophists, Christian scientists, spiritualists, Russellites, etc., no matter how a man may live, in open defiance of heaven, with no concern whatever for his soul's eternal interest, still less for God's glory, dying, perhaps with an oath on his lips, notwithstanding, God loves him, we are told. So widely has this dogma been proclaimed, and so comforting is it to the heart which is at enmity with God, we have little hope of convincing many of their error. That God loves everybody is, we may say, quite a modern belief. The writings of the Church Fathers, the Reformers or the Puritans, will, we believe, be searched in vain for any such concept. Perhaps the late D. L. Moody, captivated by Drummond's The Greatest Thing in the World, did more than anyone else in the last century to popularize this concept. It has been customary to say God loves the sinner, though he hates his sin. Footnote. Romans 5 verse 8 is addressed to saints, and the we are the same ones as those spoken of in chapter 8 verses 29 and 30. End of footnote. But that is a meaningless distinction. What is there in a sinner but sin? Is it not true that his whole head is sick, and that his whole heart faint, and that from the sole of the foot even unto the head there is no soundness in him? Isaiah 1, verses 5 and 6. Is it true that God loves the one who is despising and rejecting his blessed Son? God is light as well as love, and therefore his love must be a holy love. To tell the Christ-rejector that God loves him is to cauterize his conscience as well as to afford him a sense of security in his sins. The fact is, the love of God is a truth for the saints only, and to present it to the enemies of God is to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. With the exception of John 3.16, not once in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Jesus, the perfect teacher, telling sinners that God loved them. In the book of Acts, which records the evangelistic labors and messages of the apostles, God's love is never referred to at all. But when we come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, we have a full presentation of this precious truth, God's love for his own. Let us seek to rightly divide the word of God, and then we shall not be found taking truths which are addressed to believers and misapplying them to unbelievers. That which sinners need to have brought before them is the ineffable holiness, the exacting righteousness, the inflexible justice, and the terrible wrath of God. Risking the danger of being misunderstood, let us say, and we wish we could say it to every evangelist and preacher in the country, 
There is far too much presenting of Christ to sinners today, by those sound in the faith, and far too little showing sinners their need of Christ, as in their absolutely ruined and lost condition, their imminent and awful danger of suffering the wrath to come, the fearful guilt resting upon them in the sight of God. To present Christ to those who have never been shown their need of him seems to us to be guilty of casting pearls before swine. Footnote. Concerning the rich young ruler of whom it is said Christ loved him, Mark 10, verse 21, we fully believe that he was one of God's elect and was saved some time after his interview with our Lord. Should it be said this is an arbitrary assumption and assertion which lacks anything in the gospel record to substantiate it, we reply, it is written, him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And this man certainly did come to him. Compare the case of Nicodemus. He too came to Christ, yet there is nothing in John 3 which intimates he was a saved man when the interview closed. Nevertheless, we know from his later life that he was not cast out. End of footnote. If it be true that God loves every member of the human family, then why did our Lord tell his disciples, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him. John 14, verse 21 and verse 23. Why say, he that loved me shall be loved of my father, if the father loves everybody? The same limitation is found in Proverbs 8, verse 17. I love them that love me. Again we read, thou hatest all workers of iniquity, not merely the works of iniquity. Here, then, is a flat repudiation of present teaching that God hates sin but loves the sinner. Scripture says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5, verse 5. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11. He that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Not shall abide, but even now abideth on him. John 3, verse 36. Can God love the one on whom his wrath abides? Again, is it not evident that the words, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.39, marks a limitation both in the sphere and objects of his love? Again, is it not plain from the words, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, Romans 9.13, that God does not love everybody? Again, it is written, for whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth, Hebrews 12.6. Does not this verse teach that God's love is restricted to the members of his own family? If he loves all men without exception, then the distinction and limitation here mentioned is quite meaningless. Finally, we would ask, is it conceivable that God will love the damned in the lake of fire? Yet, if he loves them now, he will do so then, seeing that his love knows no change. He is without variableness or shadow of turning. End of chapter 11, part 1. Recording by Jen Raimundo.